Good morning. Hebrews, the 12th chapter, in the second verse, says, Looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, who for the joy that was set before Him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is set down at the right hand of the throne of God. 2,000 years ago, Jesus of Nazareth was led to a hill called Golgotha, where he was executed by crucifixion. He was hung on a cross between two thieves. He would hang on that cross for approximately six hours before he would eventually die. And if that would have been the end of the story of Jesus, then the story of this Galilean carpenter would have been no different than the thousands and thousands of other people who were executed by Rome or some cult leader that was able to get some people to follow him. But the cross is not where the story of Jesus ends. 1 Corinthians, the 15th chapter, the first 10 verses, says, Moreover, brethren, I declare unto you the gospel which I preached unto you, which also ye have received, and wherein ye stand, by which also ye are saved, if ye keep in memory that I preached unto you, unless ye have believed in vain. For I delivered unto you, first of all, that which I also received, how that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, and that He was buried, and that He rose again the third day according to the Scriptures, and that He was seen of Cephas, then of the twelve. After that, He was seen of above five hundred brethren at once, of whom the greater part remain unto this present, but some are fallen asleep. After that, He was seen of James, then of all the apostles, and last, He was seen of me also, as one born out of due time. For I am the least of the apostles, that am not meet to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am. After Jesus dies on the cross, Joseph of Arimathea goes to Pilate and he asks for the body of Jesus so that he could bury him. Joseph was apparently a somewhat wealthy man, someone who had enough political clout that he could walk up to to Pilate and ask, for the body of an executed man. Joseph was also a member of the Sanhedrin, but he had come to believe in Jesus. He, along with Nicodemus, who was also a member of the Sanhedrin, they take the body of Jesus and they prepare it for burial. They cover the body with the traditional ointments and fragrances. They wrap it in linen and they lake take it late one Friday afternoon, and they place his body in a new tomb in a garden. And then a large stone was rolled in front of the door of the tomb. The Jews had heard in the past that Jesus said he would rise from the dead. So to prevent this, they, they go and they ask for a dispatch of soldiers. They've heard, like I said, that Jesus had claimed that he would rise from the dead so that the disciples couldn't go and say and steal the body and say he's risen from the dead. They have these soldiers placed in front of the tomb to guard it. 
All the while, the apostles and followers of Jesus have fled. They're in shock and despair. This man that they thought was the Messiah was murdered like a common criminal, and he's now dead and buried. As Friday turns to Saturday and then Saturday turns to Sunday, some of the women who were followers of Jesus decide that they want to make a trip to the tomb where the body had been laid. They want to pay their respects. They want to further prepare the body. So Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of Jesus, and a few other women make their way to the garden. But as they approach, they see something unusual. They don't see those guards standing around the tomb. Instead, they see that the stone has been rolled away. They take a look inside the tomb, but there is no body there. Jesus is gone. Mary Magdalene apparently freaks out a little bit, and she takes off back towards home. She loved Jesus. He had healed her. He had changed her life. And this man that she had followed, that she had dedicated her life to, had just been murdered. He had been humiliated. And now she fears that someone has stolen the body. She runs back to town to tell Peter and John the news. The rest of the women, they stay there. And then suddenly they see two men sitting in the tomb. Their clothes shined like lightning. One was sitting where the head of Jesus would have been. One was sitting where his feet would have been. There was no body there. Only angels. Instead of the darkness of death, they see shining lights sent from heaven. Still though, they don't understand. They, they kneel down before these angels. And the angels, they know why they are here. They tell the women... Jesus is no longer here. He's no longer dead. He is risen. And that they need to go tell others that Jesus is risen from the dead. While all of this is going on, Mary Magdalene races back to town to tell Peter and John that Jesus can't be found. She finally reaches their homes and and she shares the news. Jesus is gone and, and no one knows where he is. As soon as Peter and John hear, they bolt out the door and they head to the tomb. John was probably a little bit younger, a little bit faster than Peter, so he reaches the tomb first. He kneels down and he looks inside, but he doesn't step inside the tomb. But he looks inside and he sees that there is no body, no Jesus. At first sight, it appears that Mary Magdalene was right. Who could have took the body? But then Peter gets there and he goes into the tomb. And he doesn't know what to make of it. The body is gone and he doesn't know where Jesus is. But John takes another look. He sees strips of linen lying there. He sees the burial clothes that have been around the head of Jesus folded up by itself, and it dawns on him. If someone stole the body, why would they take time to remove these linens from a decaying body? 
And why would they take time to neatly fold the linen napkin? This wasn't the scene of a grave robbery. This was the scene of a resurrection. The scene of a man that was in control. And John realized what had happened. So Peter and John head back home. Shortly after they leave, Mary Magdalene arrives back at the tomb. She's a little bit slower getting back there than Peter and John. But as she gets back to the tomb, all she can do is kneel down and cry. But then she looks into the tomb. She sees those two angels that had spoken to the other women. And those angels ask her, why are you crying? And she tells them, Someone has stolen the body of Jesus, and I don't know where he is. And then Mary, she turns around. She sees a man approaching. She thinks maybe he's a gardener there there around the tomb. Maybe it was the tears in her eyes, I don't know, but she didn't know who this man was. She sees this man approaching, she thinks that, like I said, he might be a gardener. And the man asks her, why are you crying? What, what are you looking for? Mary tells him that she's looking for Jesus. And if he'll just tell her where he is, what happened to him, she'll go take care of him. But then the man says, Mary. Maybe it was the tone of his voice. Maybe it was the way that that name sounded from those lips. Maybe Jesus just decided to reveal Himself. For whatever reason, this was no gardener. This was the resurrected Savior. This was Jesus Christ. He is risen. The tomb was empty. Not because someone stole the body, but because He is risen. That tomb was empty and that tomb is still empty today. No one could deny that the tomb of Jesus was empty. Not the Romans, not the Jews, not the followers of Jesus. The tomb was empty. And that tomb of Jesus is still empty today. Brooke Foss Westcott once said, There is no historic incident better or more variously supported than the resurrection of Christ. Friend and foe alike cannot deny that the tomb of Jesus is empty. And the emptiness of that tomb forces us to look inside of it like so many did that Easter Sunday 2,000 years ago. And it forces us to answer the question, What will we do with Jesus? What will we do with the empty tomb? If we look into that empty tomb today, what do we see? Some people looked into the empty tomb of Jesus and they were angry. The Pharisees and the religious leaders looked into the empty tomb and they were filled with hatred and anger and pride. They couldn't deny that the body wasn't there. They had, like I mentioned earlier, even had soldiers dispatched to make sure that no one came to steal the body. But they couldn't keep Jesus 
in the tomb. And they couldn't deny that Jesus was no longer there. Once they heard, that the, heard from the soldiers that Jesus had risen from the dead, and instead of accepting Jesus, they tried to cover it up. They offered bribes to the soldiers. They couldn't deny the resurrection. They couldn't deny the empty tomb. So they got angry. They tried everything they could do to stamp out Jesus and His followers. They threw people in jail. They had people executed. They knew that if people began to accept the resurrection of Jesus, then they would have to accept this Jesus, who they had crucified, was now Lord in Christ. And they weren't willing to do that. That would mean that they were no longer the rulers of their of the, of the people. They wouldn't be rulers of their own lives. So they got angry. And there are still people like that today. They look into the empty tomb. They hear the story of the resurrection of Jesus and they are forced with the same dilemma. Accept Jesus as the resurrected King of my life or rebel against Him with anger and pride and with hate. And that's why you see so many people try to come up with theory after theory on why the tomb was empty. The followers of Jesus stole the body. The swoon theory that Jesus wasn't really dead. The the idea that the followers of Jesus all simultaneously hallucinated and imagined seeing Him. Or just denying the Gospel narrative itself. But all those theories have been proven to be false. The only explanation for the empty tomb is that Jesus is risen. He is who He said He was. He is the resurrected King of His kingdom. And no amount of anger or pride or hate will ever change that fact. Others looked into the empty tomb and they were confused and they were scared. That's what actually happened to most of the apostles and the disciples. They thought that Jesus was supposed to be king. He was supposed to be the Messiah that would overthrow Roman oppression. But now he's killed and the body is missing. And sometimes we can begin to think... Look at, the, look at the Gospels and, and read the story there. And, and I think today we can look back and we think, how can they be so dumb? How can the disciples be so dumb? They heard Jesus. They, they walked with Him for three years. They listened to Him teach and preach and, and heal people. They heard Him say that He would rise. They heard all these things. But it's important to remember that the apostles and the disciples were experiencing this in real time. We have the luxury of reading the Scriptures, knowing how this story ends. The, the apostles, they, they didn't have that perspective. So when they see Jesus captured, they see Him executed, and they see Him laid in a tomb, they think that things were over. They didn't understand. They thought the mission had failed. Some went back to their jobs. Some doubted. They locked themselves in the upper room questioning what their next move was going to be. 
despite the fact that they had heard Jesus, that they had heard His teaching, they walked with Him, like I said, for three years, they doubted. They saw their circumstances. They saw death. And they doubted. Aren't we the same way sometimes? We see what's going on in the world and we can let doubt begin to creep in. We see a man walk into a Colorado grocery store and kill ten people. We see hatred. We see death. We see destruction. We see wickedness. But what about when the news hits even closer to home? We have friends and loved ones hurt us or abandon us. We receive a medical diagnosis or a loved one passes away and we wonder, where, where are you, God? I thought that life was supposed to be abundant and great and, and wonderful as a Christian. Why do I have to deal with this loss or this circumstance or this disease or this death? Sure, we, we hear the Word of God. We know the promises that we've been given. We see the empty tomb. But we, like most of the apostles, begin to ask, where's Jesus? And even though we have seen the empty tomb, we have looked inside of it, we let doubt and fear creep in. And instead of living the abundant and faithful life of a child of God, we're stuck in the upper rooms of our lives and our churches. Not sure what to do. But then there are some that look into the empty tomb of Jesus and see something else. Not anger and hate. Not doubt and fear. Instead, they see hope. John looked into the empty tomb and the Scriptures say that he believed. He saw the burial clothes. He saw the neatly folded napkin. He saw the empty tomb. He saw the evidence and he believed. And that belief led to hope. But what is hope? That can be one of those words that we hear, we read it in the Scriptures, but we don't fully understand what it implies or what it means. You know what? I hope that Texas A&M wins the national championship in football next season. But I have been an Aggie for going on 20 or 25 years, and I have seen the evidence, and I don't really think that's probably going to happen. <laughs> I hope that the stock market goes up by 25% for the next 25, 30 years so that I can retire comfortably. But I don't really think that's going to happen. When I say that I have hope as a Christian, is it like that? That I'm wishing for something to happen, but, but in my heart, I'm a little skeptical. 1 Peter, the first chapter in the 13th verse says, Wherefore, gird up the loins of your mind, be sober, and hope to the end for the grace that is to be brought unto you. Skipping down to verse 21 of that same chapter, says, By Him do we believe in God that raised Him up from the dead and gave Him glory that your faith and hope might be in God. Peter says that we should have hope unto the end, that our faith and our hope might be in God. 
So what does that hope mean? Scott Gage, who is a a dear friend of mine, a brother in Christ, an elder at the South Hill Church of Christ in, in Fayetteville, Arkansas, who we all know, or many of us know here, he once wrote about what hope is and what it means. And he defined hope not as wishful thinking, but as a confident expectation of things to come. It is more than just wishing something would happen. It's having full confidence and faith that what we have been promised will come to pass. That these great and precious promises that we have been given will come true. And when we look into the empty tomb, we don't see the end of the story of Jesus. We see the hope of a resurrected Savior. 1 Corinthians, the 15th chapter and the 23rd verse says, But every man in his own order, Christ the firstfruits, afterward they that are Christ's at His coming. Because the tomb is empty and because of the promises that we have, if we follow in His steps, we can look into the empty tomb and we can find hope. We see the hope and the assurance that this world is not my home. That this life in this world is not where I belong. It's not my ultimate destiny. Christ endured the pain and the shame and the horror of the cross knowing that the end of His work and His life here awaited Him eternal glory in life and a home in heaven. Despite His circumstances, despite His troubles and the trials that He endured, He had the confident expectation that He would return home to His Father in heaven. And we too have that same hope. So when we see the news and we see how messed up this world can be, anchor yourself to that hope, that confident expectation that this world is not your home. When you receive bad news, when your friends or your family abandon you or hurt you, or you receive that medical diagnosis that burdens your heart, stand firm and know that whatever comes your way is only temporary. This world is not your home. There is something better waiting for you. Josh McDowell once said, no matter how devastating our struggles, disappointments, and troubles are, they are only temporary. No matter what happens to you, no matter the depth of tragedy or pain you face, no matter how death stalks you and your loved ones, the resurrection promises you a future of immeasurable good. This echoes the sentiments of Paul in 2 Corinthians, the second chapter and the ninth verse. When he said, I hath not seen nor ear heard the things which God hath prepared for them that love Him. In this hope and assurance that this world is not our home leads us to the hope, the confident expectation that death is not the end of our story. The story of Jesus of Nazareth didn't end when Joseph of Arimathea placed his body in that tomb. And one day when Luke and John and Angela are standing by my grave, 
it won't be the end of my story. My death will not be the end of life for me. It will be the beginning of my eternal life in heaven. Mozart once said that death is the key that unlocks our true happiness. But how, how can that be? Death is scary. Death is unknown. We cry when we go to funerals because they're, they're sad and they seem so final. But Jesus Christ faced the grave. And He faced death. And He overcame it. O death, where is thy sting? O grave, where is thy victory? But thanks be to God, which giveth us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. And that victory was completed when the tomb was empty. So now no longer must we live life in fear of death. Death is not the end. It's a transition. Like when we fall asleep at night and wake up the next day. I remember as a child taking many trips up to Arkansas to see my grandparents. They lived in Springdale, Arkansas, northwest corner of, of the state of Arkansas. It's only about a five and a half hour drive up there. But to a child, that seems like an eternity. And this was, you know, 30 years ago, back before the age of iPads and DVD players and and Nintendo Switches, and all those sorts of things. And it isn't like you're passing through the most scenic route for most of the trip. You go through central Oklahoma uh, for most of the trip, so you're not looking at things that are, that are terribly interesting to look at. So often what I would do is I would fight Katrina for space in the van, push her away, and, and go to sleep. I would take a nap in the van. I would sleep. I would lay in the back of the van and, and take a nap. And when I would wake up, I would be home. I would have arrived. I wouldn't remember the journey that I had taken. I would wake up home, knowing that my father had brought me home safely to my destination. And that's probably the best way that I can describe how I view death now. It's no longer a destination. It's something that we will go through. But we have the confident expectation that my Father will bring me home safely to the other side. When I think about hope, I think about my six-year-old son, John. Jesus once said, except ye be converted and become as little children, ye shall not enter into the kingdom of heaven. And as I've watched John grow and develop, I, I feel like I have a deeper understanding or appreciation of what Jesus meant when he said that. When I see John and how he has handled some of the things that he's experienced in his short life, I see what it means to hope. When his grandpa died, I sat him down and, and I sat him down to tell him the news. And he looked at me and he said, Dad, it's okay. We'll see grandpa in heaven. He'll ask me what heaven's going to be like. And he says things like, I can't wait to see what God looks like. 
When he looks at old family photos and he sees pictures of my parents and my grandparents, he says, I can't wait to meet Clifton and George and Bertha May and Carolyn. He asks me from time to time if Uncle Gerald would think he's special. And I tell him, oh, son, you, you can't imagine. Uncle Gerald would think you're extra special. And he tells me about how he's going to run up and he's going to give him a big hug one day and introduce himself and tell him he's John. To John, those sorts of things aren't a wish. They aren't something that, that might happen someday. He has a confident expectation that the things that God has promised will come to pass. He has hope. And I look into the empty tomb of Jesus and I find hope. Hope that someday I'll see my grandparents again. Hope that I'll see Gerald again. Hope that I'll see my parents again. And hope that I'll see Jesus. That I will see with my eyes the glorious vision that we see in Revelation 5. The Lamb of God seated by the throne of God. The innumerable company of angels gathered around the throne. And I'll join in that chorus and I'll sing, Worthy is the Lamb that is slain. Blessing and honor and glory and power be unto him that sitteth upon the throne and to the Lamb that liveth forever and ever. And like we sung about this morning, I'll cast my crown down at his precious wounded feet and be home for all eternity. And I have that hope because Jesus Christ died for my sins. But not just that He died, but that He rose again. That He took my sins in His body, that He took them to the grave, but the grave could not hold Him. The tomb is empty. He is risen. And because of it, we have hope that one day we will join Him. But in order to join him, we must follow in his steps. Romans, the sixth chapter, starting in the third verse, says, Know ye not that so many of us, as were baptized into Jesus Christ, were baptized into his death? Therefore, we are buried with him by baptism into death that like as Christ was raised up from the dead by the glory of the Father, even so we also should walk in newness of life. For we have been planted together in the likeness of His death, we shall also in the likeness of His resurrection. Knowing this, that our old man is crucified with Him, that the body of sin might be destroyed, that henceforth we should not serve sin. Paul tells us that if we will follow that form of doctrine and we allow our faith to move us to repent of our sins and confess that Jesus Christ is Lord and be buried in baptism, we will follow in His steps and we will be resurrected to eternal life. Jesus told Martha just before He raised Lazarus from the dead, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in Me, though he die, yet shall he live again. 
Do you want to have that hope today? Do you want to have that confident expectation that one day you will rise from that grave and meet Jesus around the throne of God? Jesus Christ paid the price for your sins. He died on the cross, He was buried, and on the third day He rose again. And He asks us to follow in His steps. Perhaps you've never done that today and you've never submitted yourself to Him in baptism and you desire to have that hope of a resurrected Savior. The water is ready and we'd love to have you join the body of Christ today in baptism. Perhaps you're struggling with the things of this life and you've let doubt creep into your life and you'd like the prayers of the church. Or perhaps something else is burdening your heart and you'd like the, the prayers of this congregation. We'd love to do that with you and for you this morning. If there's anything we can do for you, please come as we stand and as we sing. I knew I was going to do this. Please turn to page 12. Number 12.